0: You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast, brought to you by Abercrombie and Kent, pioneering experiential luxury travel since 1962. Buckle up and take off every fortnight to spectacular destinations as we share the inside word on all things travel. Whether you're into luxury travel or tripping on a budget, whether it's river cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an awesome travel experience. Tune in with Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. And be sure to like and share this episode so everyone can get a taste of all things Travel And now, on to the show with your hosts from Christchurch, New Zealand, Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch.
1: Welcome along to a new edition of Kiwi Tripsters as COVID-19 pandemic continues to keep most of us grounded, most of us indoors, but we can still dream and we can still show you and all the amazing places there is to visit eventually when this lockdown is over, Mike.
2: That is very true, Chris. I guess we all feel like birds trapped in cages at the moment, but our wings will not be clipped forever. And, of course, there is no reason to suspend your bucket list travel dreaming for the meantime. Exactly. You've got to dream
1: these days. Get out your vision wall if you need to, because in the last episode of Kiwi Trips, to uh, we kicked off uh, our bucket list adventures uh, with uh, you heading to Gallipoli, an amazing place to visit as Anzac Day approaches. Let's talk about some other bucket list travels. Uh, for example... You went to Jordan. Now, this place looks absolutely amazing. And I was trying to decipher whether or not it looks very hot over there because I've had a lot of friends who have gone there, but they don't seem to be sweaty and it looks like it would be a very hot country. So tell us about that.
2: Well, I guess it's because it's a dry heat, Chris. That's why your friends didn't look all sweaty and claggy. Um, Well, thanks for tearing that up. (laughs) (laughs) But in the peak of the summer in Jordan, which is generally May to August, you will get frightfully fierce daytime highs, you know, 40, 45 degrees, probably even nudging 50 in July. Wow. Wow. But November to March is probably the most popular time to go there because it is a lot more bearable. Around 25 degrees would be the maximums. And obviously being desert, it gets very cold at night. But I was lying in bed the other night, Chris, thinking about what I would consider to be my favorite bucket list travel achievements. And yes, going to Wadi Rum in Jordan would be right up there. I think it's um, the classic landscape of the Middle East which makes Wadi Rum so enchanting. It straddles the region's major ancient camel trading route. You've got the bosom of Bedouin hospitality there. And if you've ever dreamed of just, you know, drifting off to sleep in the wide Arabian desert, yes, Wadi Rum is a magical place to do it.
1: It looks like sort of Lawrence of Arabia country.
2: Yeah, very much so. And he is still absolutely revered by the locals, the Bedouins. Now, Lawrence uh, was, of course, the British Army officer who famously united all of those desert Bedouin tribes, and successfully led them to war against the Ottoman Empire. So their land was liberated. And one of the most arresting landmarks in Wadi Rum actually takes its name from Lawrence's autobiography, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And it's the most beautiful, caramel-coloured, monolithic marvel And it is, it's like um, these seven sort of cylindrical tubes all bound together. It's like something out of Dr. Zeus, just amazing. Many people will have seen Wadi Rum in the 1960s epic Lawrence of Arabia starring Peter O'Toole, which was filmed on location at the desert.
1: And this is where Martian was also shot too, very famous for the Hollywood community.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Hollywood's love affair with the landscape has endured for decades. And yes, if you saw The Martian starring Matt Damon, it would have been, what, probably about six years ago now? Um this very much uh, was uh, shot on location at Wadi Rum, performing the role of Mars. And when you gaze across the vast beauty of the desert, it's the sands, that rich red colour of the sand, and all of the whimsical shapes of the rock formations, which is why Wadi Rum is such a trusty stunt double for Mars. But along with the landscape, I think the real draw is connecting with the Bedouin culture. They call Wadi Rum the Valley of the Moon, which is so nice and romantic, and it's still home to (laughs) 5,000 Bedouin. Uh, They basically control Wadi Rum. They've sort of like got semi-autonomy and govern it on behalf of the Jordan government.
1: And what is it like in terms of that touristy experience? Do they sort of make it feel overrun with that tourist feel, or has it still
2: got its local charm? Yeah, authenticity, I think, is very much to the fore in Wadi Rum. Uh, it's very rustic, very low-key, uh, which is quite refreshing. The traditional goat here tents you'll see just all over the landscape, and you won't find any big hotels or splashy resorts, thank God, in the desert. I spent the day with the Bedouin family out in the desert, which really was the most rewarding experience. And interestingly, I thought um, they're actually very advanced in many ways because the kids are taught Arabic and English in their Bedouin schooling system. And a lot of Bedouin villagers will stay in the desert on the weekend so that they stay true to their wandering nomadic roots. And then, you know, they'll um, uh, be in a town doing a day job from Monday to Friday. I ended up herding goats with a bunch of 10-year-old Bedouin kids, Chris, and I have to say, I think I may have missed my calling in life. I think I am just a natural when it comes to corralling goats.
1: Well, you're also a natural in eating as well. The food okay. there looks great. Tell us about the, the lamb cooked meals you can have there as
2: well. Well, I love lamb and a Bedouin roast is called a zarb, which is... Consists of a whole lamb cooked in an underground drum under the sands of the desert. It's sort of a bit like a Maori Arabic hybrid meal. It's you know sort of like the Arabic hungy. Um, the lamb was so juicy, tasty, and succulent. The moist meat just literally falls off the bone. And the other great calling card of hospitality in Wadi Rum is the sweet Bedouin tea, which uh, you will be invited to drink wherever you go. It's sort of like the calling card of hospitality. Would you like a tea? Um, It's ridiculously sweet, uh, would be a prime target for a sugar tax, but it's a surprisingly good antidote uh, when that desert heat really sparks up.
1: Yeah and and tell us about where you slept because I know that you spent a night in Sun City Camp. It's a very um different looking experience though I
2: must say. Uh, quite cozy though. Looks like something you'd probably see on Mars. Well, yes, Sun City Camp um is probably your quintessential Wadi Rum accommodation experience. It's operated by Bedouin villages, so you're getting that real deal local hospitality. My tent came with a flushing toilet and one light bulb. So, Life's Essentials, Chris, were covered. And the biggest surprise, the biggest treat of all, and you wouldn't mm. consider this one of Life's Essentials, lightning-fast Wi-Fi, Chris, deep in wow. the
1: desert.
2: Yeah. In the middle of nowhere. I think it was <laughs> Just more reliable than the Wi-Fi I have at home. There you go. Um, well, that's not that's, hard. Well, thank you. That's about as far as the frills go. By and large, it's... You know, a back to basics, elemental experience. Because the real draw, along with the local hospitality, is actually the solitude of the desert. Those desert yeah. sunsets, the unspoiled desert vistas, and also soaking it all up—that wonderful desert environment on the back of a camel. Who are very trusty four-legged uh, Uber operators. You can't go wrong on a camel, Chris. Is it apart from that? Is it easy to get there? Well, it's very easy once you get into Jordan. So from Amman, it's about two hours south, just past Petra to Wadi Rum. Jordan itself, though, I mean, it's a pretty gnarly neighbourhood. You've got Syria right next door, but don't let that put you off. Once you get to Amman, Wadi Rum is waiting for you.
1: This is Kiwi Tripsters. Let's take you to some wondrous waterworks on the border of Brazil and Argentina, the Iguazu Falls. Getting there does take some effort, like any place really around um, Brazil. But once you are there, it is amazing, Mike. It certainly is. I know you've been to Brazil, Chris. Did you get to the falls? I didn't know, but I got to, uh, we stayed in South Brazil. And it was just an amazing experience. It really was. I felt uh, once you get past the Argentinian border and you arrive in Brazil, the people are just so nice and so friendly. I stayed at a lovely, uh, I was going to say town, but it's a city, uh, porto Rico. And what Mm -hmm. an amazing experience. I just loved it. In fact, I was staying with a couple of friends and we were just staying about half an hour's drive south from that in a little wee idyllic village. And it was just a very magical experience.
2: I look back very fondly on my time in South Brazil. Fantastic. Well, I was really keen to go and see Iguazu Falls. And yeah, I mean, it is totally off the beaten track. So to get there, you have to catch a flight from either Rio or Buenos Aires. And to drive it, let's suppose you're in Buenos Aires, it would take you 22 hours to drive it. So that's crazy. Um, but for all the hype about these waterfalls, I was pleasantly surprised that they do live up to their billing as one of the new seven wonders of the world. So from above, it's as though a giant fist has pulverised the plateau, shattering the Earth's crust and creating a really deep chasm where the river plunges over the cliffs. It is a ridiculously humongous spectacle which prompted one recent visitor to describe Iguazu Falls as Niagara on Viagra, which I love. I think that just sums it up. It is Niagara on a giant scale. You see, I've been to Niagara Falls and I felt,
1: a little bit disappointed because you see so many images, so many beautiful photos of it. Once you're there, I think some of the magic's taken away because sometimes people's photos make things look bigger and better than what they really are. How would you compare Niagara Falls to the falls in Brazil?
2: Well, I think it is on a supersized scale, Chris. That's probably the, the easiest way I can describe it because they are four times the width of Niagara, twice as high as Niagara. And they found out over nearly 300, sorry, over three kilometres in a sort of a horseshoe shape. And there are 250 single waterfalls within the waterfall. Um, The drop into the gorge is 80 metres, so nearly the length of a rugby field. So by any measure, these falls are colossal. And it's just that sheer force of water flowing Mm. that just blows you away. They could fill five Olympic-sized swimming pools every single second, the force of that water.
1: It is amazing when you think about other places where there's a water shortage, but not over there. Tell us about a bit of a highlight for you as Devil's Throat, wasn't it?
2: Absolutely. This really is the ecological blockbuster, a ferocious convulsion of surging water dropping into a vast milky abyss, and it creates this permanent cloud of mist. So it is a beast, Chris. It's a beast with a deafening roar, and it generates a spray so intense it's as though geysers have erupted from below. Uh, There is a walking platform that takes you right to the top of the drop, um, and I forgot to pack my poncho. So I ended up being mugged $20 for a glorified sheet of glad wrap, <laughs> masquerading as a poncho. But walking to the end of uh, the platform is like walking into the world's biggest open-air rain chair. And the devil's throat is just there in all its glory right yeah. in front of you. There's
1: something quite magical about nature when you're out and about near a massive waterfall and you get that, that sea spray feeling. It, it just feels, yeah, it's relaxing, isn't it? It's very powerful. Now, I don't know about this one, whether I'd be so keen for this, but there's a bit of a speedboat ride close by. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, this is another unmissable experience uh, to take a jet boat ride around the falls. At first, it's all very gentle and sedate, and you think, oh, yeah, this will be all right for a few selfies uh, and snap a few shots of the waterfalls. But then it's cameras away, and off you go, like a scene out of Apocalypse Now, into what feels like the jaws of Devil's Throat. So you're right down at the base of it. The spray is so dense, so intense, so disorientating, there is zero visibility, and you just hope like hell the skipper knows his way out of it. <laughs> it is terrifying but exhilarating, and needless to say, my twenty dollars sheet of Glad wrap uh, was ripped to shreds on the jet boat ride. Why were you? Why did you have Glad wrap in the first place? Well, I didn't have a poncho. Weren't you listening? I didn't no. take a poncho with me. You see, so I had to pay but a you've local got to get, twenty dollars.
1: But, but, Oh, for goodness! Yeah. But that's the whole point. You want to get a bit wet and, <laughs> and really enjoy it, you weakling. <laughs> <laughs> what side of the falls? I mean, the, the, what side of the falls has the edge? Is it the Argentinian side or Brazil side? Because there's been some controversy in the past as to what's better to look at from what pointers point of view.
2: Well, they will both say they've got the best side, of course. It is one of the world's mm-hmm. great rivalries. In fact. The, the other little curious fact about um, this part of the world, there are two international airports that operate so close to each other, but both countries certainly strive to get the biggest slice of the tourist pie. What I would say is on the Argentina side, you get the intimate up-close encounter of the falls, but the Brazilian side blows their neighbour out of the water for the wide-angle panoramics of Iguazu Falls. It's in Brazil that you realise just how sprawling these falls are. So Argentina for intimacy, Brazil for immensity. Before
1: our next segment, though, we don't want to forget about the wildlife. There are some absolutely stunning wildlife in that part
2: of the, the world. Yeah, well, the falls, of course, are fringed in Atlantic tropical rainforest, and you will see some stunning critters. My favorite are the toucans, those beautiful, big, noble looking birds, bright and bulbous, uh, those fabulous orange beaks. In fact, an injured toucan recently got a new beak courtesy of a 3D printer at Iguazu Falls, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, you will also uh, see hordes of Giant butterflies, taper monkeys, and coati, which are like raccoons. They are pathological scavengers. Um, they're sort of like vultures on four legs, uh, totally fearless of people. And they, there are thousands and thousands of them roaming in Iguazu National Park.
0: Stay tuned. Kiwi Tripsters will be right back after this break. Abercrombie and Kent was
2: born on safari in East Africa in the early 1960s. It's grown to become the world leader in luxury adventure travel. Now with 56 offices and more than 2,500 travel experts on the ground around the world, Abercrombie & Kent takes the world's most discerning travellers on exquisite journeys in more than 100 countries and all seven continents. This is luxury travel redefined, taking you out of your comfort zone in exquisite comfort on handcrafted bespoke private and small group journeys and luxury expedition cruises. Talk to your travel agent, call Abercrombie and Kent on 0800 441638 or visit abercrombiekent.co.nz. Well, with much of the world in a state of lockdown, international tourism has taken a hell of a hit in recent weeks. In brighter days, look some way away. For reputable travel professionals, the number one priority has been to spirit their clients home to New Zealand from all over the globe and to do so safely. (coughs) Customer care has never been so important. So how is the international travel industry coping? Joining us is Robin Galloway, who is Managing Director of the Innovative Travel Company, based in Christchurch for 30 years, Robin and her team have been organising and operating tours and extraordinary travel experiences all over the world. Robin, thank you very much for joining us. Hello, Mike. Good morning. Robin, as a wholesaler and tour operator with such a huge range of global destinations and products, how formidable has it been to bring your clients safely home from such far-flung places? Well,
3: That's an interesting question, Mike. Uh, I think i probably have to wheel it back a little bit. As a female tour operators, uh one of the few in the world when I started in 1990, I was uh, very conscious in client safety and security. It's always been top of my list because as a solo female traveler back in the 80s and a naive one at that, I had got myself into uh, sticky situations, not uh, in the Middle East, but in the US. So, I decided that clients needed to be safe. So, that's always been part of our sort of thinking. So we have Innovate Travel has local partners throughout the world, and and about the 40 destinations that we deal in, and that great trust has been established over many years. So one of the things was that our partners, because they're on the button in these different destinations, were alerting us often at night that the borders were going to close within uh, forty eight or seventy two hours notice. So at least we just have that kind of notice, which was fantastic. So then we were able to work with them and they would literally mobilize their teams and uh, very quickly make alternative arrangements. And on several occasions, I was on the phone at 4 a.m. to travel agents and travel brokers I know in New Zealand, and they were simultaneously booking their flights at the same time that we were actually talking to our people in Egypt or Jordan or wherever it was, and they had the clients on the other end. And we were just harmonizing the whole travel arrangements and it would just usually take five or 10 minutes uh, per client. So that was fantastic uh, to be able to bring. And we had a, I'm happy to say that Innovative Travel, working with our professional travel agent partners in New Zealand had a 100% success rate. So that was awesome. So there was no no awful uh, people worrying, uh, very different to the DIY bookers, I must say.
2: Mm. Yeah, well, and that raises uh, my next question. In terms of, the rise and rise of online booking sites versus travel professionals like yourself. Do you think this will serve as a stark lesson to travellers about who does and doesn't provide real customer care when all hell breaks loose?
3: Well, I think it certainly has uh, been like that. I think that it'll cause people to stop and pause because it just seems so easy to Mm. book your travel. You know, oh, I can go online, I can book it. And, but the reality is that, I mean, I've heard lots of sob stories from people uh, who did choose to book online. Oh, I've got a deal. And, you know, people have booked villas in Italy. I heard of one lady who was in the media in Dunedin. She's lost 28000 It was their one trip of a lifetime. And mm. uh, they booked it online. Another friend of mine, who should have known better, had booked a villa in Italy. $8,000 euro for special occasion. He's not seeing that money. Because what, what the individual just can't, um, you know, has got no, no no power in these situations whereas and I think what a lot of the travellers don't realise is that travel agents have these GDS computers, they're not internet linked and they can look at hundreds of flight options at the same time so they are able to easily and hold flights you know, so it's been a big difference
2: You mentioned um, the likes of Egypt and Jordan before. And for people who are familiar with innovative travel, they'll know that, you know, those ancient kingdoms uh, form a core part of your product range. Um, I suppose it would be understandable to think that, you know, in a time of uh, complexity where you're trying to get people out of places like Egypt or Morocco or Jordan, it may be harder. But, you know, from your recent experience through this, uh, with all of your on-the-ground contacts and networks and expertise, um, has it been reasonably plain sailing to deal with the likes I'd of Egypt and actually, Jordan?
3: I'd say, Mike, actually it's been incredibly plain sailing. It's just so easy because we've wow. known these companies for years and the other advantages in, in countries like Egypt, uh, where we've got local offices in Alexandria, Cairo, Dutsal, Espan, uh, Agada. that sometimes in these situations, as you know, when there's any kind of national crises, Mm. Uh, phone lines get overloaded, and cell phones—you know—sometimes you can't get cell phone coverage. So, for people who were on their own, they were having real issues getting through to anywhere. Whereas our partners, we've got—if there was any communications issues—they could actually just little guy would just get in his four-wheel drive and go off to see the clients at the hotel and and just talk to them and see what they wanted to do. So, in fact, it was—I don't. Uh, there was only one that took a bit longer, and that's because the client kept insisting he wanted to add a whole lot of other countries into his travel on the way home. We were talking with his travel agent who was doing his best to convince the client that this probably wasn't a good idea, which is just as well. He might be in Central America at the moment. So, um, But the other thing was that as we were getting alerts, we were sending these alerts to the national offices of the House of Travels, the Hello Worlds, and uh, the, the World Travellers and, and our other partners. So mm-hmm. they could then alert their team that this border was closing then and because there were so many borders closing so quickly uh, yeah. that it was hard, for, even hard for travel nations to keep up. So then they could run reports, see who's away, contact them and alert them. Whereas if people were backpacking or whatever, they might, oh, whatever. You yeah, know, the, the minister's telling us to come home, you know, well, you yeah, will get there. But they were able to send a serious message to their client. And that's where the professional travel industry, you know, working with people like ourselves has just done the most amazing service. There's so many hero stories out there. There's just, thousands. And when you think mm. that two or three hundred thousand people depart New Zealand in February and, and in March, suddenly all those people have to come home. Uh, it's, it's huge. And
0: yeah. I think
3: another thing is that what the uh, travellers need to be aware of, and there's been some common consumer affairs that, oh, well, travel agents have your money, just give it back. It's just not that easy because travel, uh, a lot of the countries that we deal with are in lockdown as well. And they don't have the same internet access that we have in New Zealand. We're very good at e-commerce. And they can't just push a button and suddenly there's a bank transfer. It doesn't happen like that. Some of these services are a lot more manual. And I got an email from Singapore Airlines the other day saying they're up to, um, they're still working on their March refunds. So, what the travelling public needs to understand is that, and I know a lot do, but there's a few I know who are getting impatient, is that there's actually hundreds of thousands of refunds being processed at the moment, and it's not going to happen in two minutes, or two days, or even two weeks, uh, because this is just incredible. But anyway, yeah. as I say, um, uh, in Turkey, uh, we were very sad to see that Gallipoli and the Anzac Day commemorations, but it turned out to be a right decision, were postponed. So we know already there's a lot of people who, who are going to be, be ready to go back next year, which will be fantastic.
2: Absolutely. What a year that will be. Um, mm. By the way, by the way uh, just a quickie on ocean cruising. Obviously, I think it would be fair to say they've got a huge PR problem going forward. But in contrast to the ocean, river cruising doesn't appear to have been the subject of many bad headlines lately. And I wonder if that...
3: I actually haven't seen any bad headlines on river no. cruising, actually, Mike. I don't know if you have. Yeah. But no. one of the things with the river cruising is, of course, the ships are a lot smaller because the rivers mm. are smaller. I mean, you'll get a 40 cabin or a 60 cabin or maybe even an 80 cabin ship, and but of course, they're Cruising within a country, they're not cruising outside the borders of the country, they're already in the country. Uh, Innovative Travel rep- represents Crossy Europe, which is a fabulous French family-owned company that have been around for 46 years. And so mm. they have been through many like, different scenarios over the years. So when they saw, let's say, the writing on the wall, it was starting to appear. They immediately made a lot of uh, health and safety standards upon, they rose their health and standards. Uh, safety standards upon their river boats, even though it didn't appear they needed to be like they, they were first responders let's say so we had zero cases uh, coming from them. It was also the beginning of the river cruising season in Europe uh, I'm not an expert on ocean cruising um, the only one I've done is a crossy 200 passenger ship around Croatia which was I love being on a small ship so uh, I can't really comment on the ocean cruising except to say that there's hundreds of ocean cruise, cruise um, vessels around the world Mm. And just a few have had some bad p r and it's I think it's a pity to take anything by just a few,
2: yeah, oh that's very generous, very generous Robin um by the way, compared to say nine eleven or the g f c is this the most herculean or ordeal you've had to face in the industry
3: uh look i remember nine eleven and um it <laughs> was a a nightmare wake-up call. But actually, when I started in a wave travel in 1990 uh, with um, just myself and my typewriter, my phone and my fax, started on April Fool's Day, probably, probably wasn't <laughs> a good idea. But in August, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and every client cancelled then. And so in contrast to now, um, a lot of clients are actually choosing to postpone to go next year because they've got these bucket list destinations. So I, I guess one of the, Challenges for the travel industry is when will borders open and when will long for borders open. Mm. Emirates have said they'll fly to New Zealand in July. We'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, it, it certainly is a challenge. We were also in the crisis earthquake and we became business refugees. So I suppose in some weird way, uh, having gone through a lot of crisis in the past, it does make you able to comprehend in a different way what's happening and the seriousness of the situation in the short term. Uh, we know that travel will come back. New Zealanders are great travellers, and we know that. Uh, in fact, of some things, this might say, "Hey, we don't know what's happening in the world. Let's go next year where we can. Let's, let's mm. just make it happen." Uh, a bit like what happened after the earthquake. So it, it's it's going to take some time. Um, best case scenario, international travel might be here in September, or it might be later in the year, or it might be even next year. It's it's hard to it's hard to know. State we've just got to work on. Uh, what we can work on. It would be helpful if the New Zealand government would provide some more clarity as soon as they're able on uh, borders. It would be very helpful for for many businesses, not just the travel business.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, the sooner the better.
3: There's just one other comment I'd like to add is that um, I've been reflecting on what might be different a little bit more and I do think that there'll be a turn back to traditional travel agents as sort of almost an umbilical cord that people want to know that their connections are all the way through. So I do see that that is something else that would change. it. Um, and it's ironic that there was ads on TV last year suggesting that travel agents were so dinosaur and so uh, you know so out of date. In fact, this whole situation has really added impetus to the value of the travel industry and, and their supply partners like us who are wholesalers at Innovative Travel.
2: Robin, really nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time and all the very best to you and your team. I know you'll survive and uh, you'll be back uh, bigger and better than ever before.
1: If you're getting a little bit stuffy inside, cabin fever and you're staring at the wall like I am, how about some virtual escape to lavish surrounds, uh, some of the best palaces in the world? And with Easter just behind us, uh, let's start on a religious note,
2: Mike. Well, that's true, Chris, because over Easter, you couldn't go to a church, but uh, you can virtually zip yourself to the Papal Palace, which houses the Vatican Museums and the Sistine Chapel. The Vatican actually ramped up their online offering recently, so you've got seven 360-degree insider tours. So the really good thing about it is you can actually size up all of the intimate details of those wall and ceiling frescoes from every angle. I went on their website the other day and they've got um, like a super zoom and focus control built into each of the insider tours. It's it's just brilliant what you can see. And um, while Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel, His mate, Raphael, was adorning the wider palace and frescoes. And curious timing, on Good Friday, Michelangelo died exactly 500 years ago on Good Friday, just been. He was only 37 when he died. And in today's terms, he would have been running the equivalent of a Fortune 500 company, the largest studio of the Renaissance. Isn't that
1: incredible? But just 37 years of age, I've learned something yeah. today, thank you. Um, now, I'm a bit of a fan of the British royal family, I think probably because of the Netflix series, The Queen, to be honest with you, but I like the fact that you can take a bit of a virtual nosy around some of the the very
2: famous castles, Mike. This is very true. You mean the crown, by the way, don't you, not the what queen? Did, what did I, what did I say? Queen. You said the queen. Oh. Which I'm is a great cool movie, but yes, the <laughs> Netflix series, The Crown. I have nearly finished season three, by the way. I just wonder how much of it we can trust, you know? Like, how much artistic license has been put into uh, The Crown? I think there's a
1: lot of artistic license, yeah, but it's great wonder. fun. It, it, it holds my interest, which is very funny.
2: Yeah, that's very true. So mm. if you've been binging on one Queen Crown, and Kiwi Tripsters. <laughs> um, Mike Yardley. If, thank you very much, Chris. What? If you go to dot? UK, all of the Queen's official residences have virtual tours. Uh, Buckingham Palace is the one that most people go to. Although I have to say, I actually think um, their offering for Buckingham Palace on the virtual tour is is pretty limited. You only see a handful of state rooms at Buck House, Windsor Castle is far more rewarding. And just the sheer weight of history at Windsor is extraordinary. It's 900 years old. It's got a 1,000 rooms. It's actually the largest still-lived-in castle in the world. And the virtual tour gives you a really good insight into what a staggering achievement it was to restore the castle with all of those master carvers and artists deployed after the horrific fire Um. what, about uh, 20, 20 years ago or so. St. George's Hall particularly is incredible for demonstrating what an amazing restoration effort it was.
1: It makes you wonder how much has been restored to full glory and how much they've also used their own artistic license to recreate what they may have thought would have been historical in its context, you
2: know? Well, supposedly they were like painstakingly uh, meticulous to replicate what there was there originally. So, yes, I don't think there's too many modern day flourishes. A very, okay. very just, conservative sort of place, you know, Chris. You know, yeah, you just change, making sure you don't <laughs> change things around that often. <laughs> what is the world's biggest royal palace? Well, Windsor may have a thousand rooms, but if size matters, Chris. Nothing compares to the Palace of Versailles, which is now actually a museum. So it's not lived in, but it has two thousand and three hundred rooms. Ridiculous. What? If you walk I thought maybe twenty-five at max (laughs) two thousand three hundred. And if you walked through all of those rooms, you would clock up five kilometers. So in many ways, when you consider that, a virtual tour Of Versailles is a lot easier than a physical visit (laughs) because you've also got those mind-blowing gardens which span 8 million square meters. Now, I worked out you could actually fit four Monaco's on the grounds of Versailles alone. So, that's how mega this property is. And the official website has fantastic virtual tours, whether you want to do the inside of the palace or the gardens. And if you've got a VR headset, Versailles would have to be the best virtual reality palace tour I have come across. And there are so many clever touches that have been built into it. So for example, you can remove the chandeliers from the Hall of Mirrors, <laughs> and you may want to remove the chandeliers so you can get a better look at the ceiling frescoes because the chandeliers get in the way. So you can do that sort sort of cool stuff on the VR uh, headset tour. And um, similarly, I know you're a Kim Kardashian fan, Chris. No, so, I'm not. Thank you. <laughs> or, or a Kanye West fan. Um, no, I'm not. If you <laughs> want to, if you if you want to check out Kim and Kanye's pre-wedding dinner party. Uh, that's been built into the VR uh, headset tour as well at Versailles. Oh, you're it's joking. Going...
1: I know. That that kind of down markets it a bit. But anyway, um,
2: what about the, the Habsburg? Does that get a look in? Mm. Yes, they um, have got plenty of old piles scattered across Europe, but Schönbrunn in Vienna is the best virtual offering from the Habsburgs Empire. It's actually Austria's most visited attraction. It's this big Baroque blockbuster. And the Habsburgs were determined to try and imitate the extravagance of Versailles when they commissioned Brunn. So they've actually got a copycat Hall of Mirrors at um, Schoenbrunn. And in that Hall of Mirrors at Schoenbrunn is where a six-year-old Mozart first performed for the oh. imperial family. He did a duet with his sister at the age of six. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah, they've yeah. got a really good virtual tour, uh, Brunn. The Royal Palace in Amsterdam, it looks mm. nice. It looks, well, it's,
1: it's very spacious, though, but it feels like it's missing something. But I, I guess that would be a great one to look around because
2: you probably can see a bit more given the, the depth of field that it creates. This is true. It was originally, actually, the town hall in Amsterdam. And then when Napoleon wreaked havoc across Europe. His brother, Louis, was put in charge of Amsterdam and transformed the town hall into his royal palace. So, yeah, they've got quite a good virtual tour um, with particular focus on the amazing furniture, the ornate marble galleries and so forth. Uh, Another really good one, Sweden's royal palace, which overlooks Stockholm's waterfront. I was actually there in the flesh this time last year, which is a spooky old oh. thought. Uh, but yet their, their palace is fabulous. The amazing thing, because, you know, we know how liberal the Swedes have been with their response to COVID, the Royal Palace in Stockholm is still open to visitors physically in the flesh. So, um, yeah. it's all systems go there they do have a good take your face mask
1: take your face mask and and your hands. yeah exactly now another country you've been to and there are plenty of palaces or grand uh, buildings there
2: Russia yeah any any recommendations well, the one that I think is really good to check out for a virtual tour in Russia is Peterhof, which is in St. Petersburg on the uh, the shores of the Gulf of Finland. And once again, it's amazing how Versailles became like this prototype of perfection in the eyes of so many other European rulers. So Peter the Great, he wanted to try and um, outdo Versailles, and it was very much the inspiration for Peter Hoff, his summer residence. The virtual tour is fantastic. And there's actually a live cam uh, of my favourite fountain in the world, which is at uh, at Peter Hoff. It's the mind-blowing, gushing Grand Cascade. And um, uh, sort of imagine like a a series of terraces, all cascading down, as the name suggests, They are all just gushing with waterfalls. There are fountains at every step down and golden statues, 37 life-sized golden statues all over this cascade. Um, it is an amazing sight. By the way, if you do want to check out the web links uh, to any of the virtual tours of these palaces, uh, just go to fortheloveoftravel.net.nz. The article about these palaces has been loaded up there. There
1: are some amazing live webcams too, which we'll explore in a future episode. Make sure you like us on our Facebook page as well. All the show notes are available there on the website, also at kiwitripsters.co.nz. Plus, we'd love for you to rate the program and review us, be kind, Kiwi Tripsters on the podcast service of your choice.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters.